Tanya and John Skelton were in the middle of a bitter divorce as Thanksgiving neared in 2010. Tanya had sole custody of their sons, ages 5, 7, and 9, but she let the boys visit her estranged husband, their dad, for the holiday. It was the last time she ever saw them. Maybe somebody listening knows what happened. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle another story from the world of true crime and see what spiritual and safety tips we can find. I know that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because I'm going to give you a practical thing you can do to become just that. This is Season 3, Episode 48. Our focus this week is on Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner Skelton. The boys spent that Thanksgiving with their dad, John, in Morency, Michigan. When Tanya went to John's house the next day to pick up her sons, he wasn't there and neither were the boys. John was in the hospital saying that he'd broken his ankle during a suicide attempt. He told multiple stories about where Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner were. When police accessed his house, the inside had been torn apart. This story isn't easy to tell, and it's got a ton of twists and turns. But what I want to focus on is how these boys were let down by someone who should have been taking care of them. Tanya filed for divorce in September of 2010 after John took the boys out of school and to Florida without her knowledge. Lenawee County court records show that she got sole custody of the boys. And this is where it starts to get a little difficult to talk about. She was actually on the Michigan State Sex Offender Registry. She had pled guilty to fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct with a 14-year-old boy back in 1998. It was a misdemeanor, but that type of offense can still have an effect on custody. So you have to wonder what was going on in John's life that the court determined he was not going to be the best place for those boys. John did file to try to get custody of the boys. He claimed that Tanya was abusing them, which she denied. John was a long-haul truck driver, and he'd also lost his job in addition to losing his marriage. His life seemed to be spiraling out of control, so maybe that's why John didn't prevail on the custody issue. Now, of course, what Tanya pled guilty to doesn't have anything to do with what happened to her boys, and it doesn't mean that she doesn't deserve to know their story. It's just another sad part of the boys' lives. Now, John told police that he gave the boys to a female friend because he didn't want them to witness him committing suicide. Police checked into that and couldn't find any evidence that this woman actually existed. The very next day, a Facebook page was created and an Amber Alert was issued. Lots of people were posting prayers and encouragement, but you wouldn't believe the kind of garbage that people also posted. One person said they thought John should be tortured until he gave up the boy's location. After the case was covered by John Walsh on America's Most Wanted in 2012, a self-described psychic medium popped up on the page and offered no helpful information whatsoever. I see that in a lot of cases. So if you're ever in a position where you're trying to find information about something that may have happened to a loved one, Really, really be careful when people come forward saying that they know something. Have them go to the police. For at least a week after the boys went missing, authorities and volunteers were searching the woods, the fields, the ponds in the area for any sign of Andrew, Alexander, or Tanner. 
Not a single clue was found and never has been, even though they've had follow-up searches over the years. Police did learn from cell phone records that John was close to several wooded areas near Holiday City, Ohio, which was about 25 miles from his home in Marinci. His phone pinged there between about 4.30 a.m. and 6.45 a.m. John claims he never went to Ohio then, but he does admit that his phone did. He says he isn't sure who had it, but somehow it just reappeared back at his house. Some officers believe that that time frame is when John either killed his sons or dumped their bodies. John drove a blue 2000 Dodge Caravan at the time, and police were and still are hoping that someone may have seen him. Since the 2010 census showed 52 residents for this little village, that was a pretty slim hope. Now, I found some reports that said court documents alleged that John Skelton searched online about how to break a neck a week before his sons vanished. Of course, remember, he claims that he was trying to commit suicide. So that's his explanation for those searches. On December 7th, less than two weeks after the boys went missing, a donut shop worker in Sandusky, Ohio, claimed that she had seen the boys in her shop. That lead didn't pan out either. And authorities were inundated with so many tips like that that they were actually having a hard time following up on all of them. Now, that may sound terrible, but there are only so many hours in a day and only a limited number of officers on a small-town police force. Because according to that same 2010 census, and that's the year the boys disappeared, Morenzi's population was just 2,220 people. When he was first questioned, John Skelton claimed to have given the boys to a woman named Joanne Taylor. And some news accounts say that John said he met her on the internet. Others say that he met her by the side of the road when she had car trouble. Either way, during a court hearing in December of 2010, John then claimed that he gave the boys to someone from what he described as an organization after these people visited him on Thanksgiving. But if that's true, why the middle-of-the-night trip to a town that only had 52 people in it? Why allegedly make a suicide attempt? Maybe by themselves, all of those things can be explained away. But you've got to look at the entire story. Within weeks, John Skelton was charged with three counts of parental kidnapping. And despite facing the possibility of being sentenced to a decade or more in prison, he entered a plea of NOLO contendere, or no contest. He essentially agreed to accept punishment without having to admit or deny responsibility. And you're probably wondering, why would anybody do that? It's a really good question. Y'all are so smart. One advantage to that plea is that since you've made no admissions, depending on the laws in your jurisdiction, that plea might not be allowed to be used against you in a future criminal or civil proceeding. But no contest pleas can often be used when determining child custody. Now, maybe John didn't think that was going to be an issue anymore. It's so interesting to me that when you go back again and look at that Facebook page that was set up for people to leave information that might lead to finding the boys, somebody posted an idea that people should write to John in prison. Now, I don't think that was for John's benefit. I think the idea was that if enough people did that, John would feel bad and he would tell authorities what really happened to Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner. It's certainly a well-meaning idea. But if John's willing to possibly harm his children or even just give them away, as he claimed, it's doubtful that letters from strangers will move him to unburden himself. 
In 2011, police stated that they believed that rather than investigating the boy's disappearance as a missing persons case, they were going to treat it as a homicide. Now, that had to have been just a tremendous blow to family members who were still holding out hope. In 2017, a promising lead came up. The remains of three siblings were found in a Missoula, Montana shed. But when the bones were tested, it was determined that they were not the remains of Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner Skelton, which means that there's another family going through something very, very similar. And that leads to the really disturbing question of how many missing sets of siblings are out there. We don't all treat our children as the precious gifts from God that they are. And that is just, that's so devastating. In 2018, Skelton claimed in an interview with Channel 4 News in Detroit that he sent the boys to live with two women and a man in his 60s on a farm in Ohio along the Indiana border. He claimed that these people were part of a, quote, underground sanctuary, unquote. He eventually said that the group went by the name United Foster Outreach and Underground Sanctuaries, but authorities could never find any group that used that name. At this point, wouldn't the boys be old enough to fend for themselves? Shouldn't John be able to just tell the world, hey, I did nothing. Here's where my kids are. You can go talk to them. They're perfectly fine. But he didn't do that, did he? He said that on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, he made the boys their favorite meal, fried chicken, and a cake to celebrate Andrew's birthday. After dinner, he claims they watched a karate movie before bed. John said at 10 p.m. on Thanksgiving night, a van pulled up to take the children. He now claims that he regrets giving the boys away. In August of this year, he was once again denied parole, but he can reapply again in another year. Not surprisingly, John has complained about his sentence, saying that it's too long. He then changed his story again and said he didn't give the boys to a sanctuary group, but the groups actually staged an intervention of sorts to get the boys away from their mother, Tanya. He's not been charged with Tanner, Alexander, or Andrew's murders, if in fact they are dead, which even though most people assume that they are, that has never been confirmed. John has changed his story about what happened to his sons at least three times. It may be more. It was so hard to keep track of the details in his ever-changing stories. What's not hard is keeping your story straight if you're telling the truth. Tanya says she will never stop looking for her boys. Morency, Michigan is right on the Ohio border less than an hour west of Toledo, and less than an hour east of Angola, Indiana. If you know anybody that lives in these areas, especially if they lived there in 2010, please share this episode with them. For the boys' family members, let's give their story another chapter, one where they're found and the truth about what happened to them can be known. Now that my family has wrapped up our Thanksgiving celebrations, I'm in full-on Christmas mode. I hope you'll all head to my website to grab your free copy of my Internet Safety Tips Guide. It's my gift to you as we start the season of shopping more online and trying to dodge scam artists. If you love it, you'll want to buy a copy of my book, How to Kick Fear to the Curb, Private Investigator Approved Personal Safety Tips with Biblical Evidence to Fear Not. You can get even more tips there and encouragement from Scripture on how to avoid living in that spirit of fear. And that way you can walk out whatever calling God has put on your life. For a Bible passage this week, I want to read from Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, 
and I'm reading from the New International Reader's Version. There are six things the Lord hates. In fact, he hates seven things. The Lord hates proud eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that kill those who aren't guilty. He also hates hearts that make evil plans and feet that are quick to do evil. He hates any witness who pours out lies and anyone who stirs up conflict in the community. Wow. We saw a little bit of all of that in this case. And it's so hard to fathom for me that someone who should have been keeping three little boys safe may have done incredibly evil things to them. A huge part of personal safety is learning who to trust and who to treat with caution. Now, of course, Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner had no choice about being with John Skelton when they vanished. But sometimes there are predators in our midst that we can keep our kids and ourselves away from. And that's what I want to talk about with this week's practical action step. Be sure that you talk to your kids or kids you teach at church or anywhere else about why it's sometimes okay not to trust adults. And I think a great way to start that series of conversations, and it is a series, it's not a one and done. Our kids need us to constantly be pouring this wisdom into them. But tell them, let them know that there's a big difference between a surprise and a secret. A surprise is fun, like what someone's getting for a birthday present. And a secret, that might be something that someone has done that they don't like, whether it's hitting, inappropriate touching, being made fun of. Let them know that they can keep surprises to themselves, but they should share secrets with you. Reassure them that they won't get in any trouble, no matter what someone else may have told them, if they tell you. I told you at the beginning that this story was going to be a tough one. But for me, the toughest part wasn't the details that I could uncover. It was the one detail that I couldn't get an answer to. And that was why. Why did any of this have to happen? If John was responsible, if the boys are dead, why did he do it? Was he so consumed with hate for his ex-wife that he was willing to wipe the boys off the face of the earth just to get back at her? Or was somebody else responsible and they wanted revenge on John? It's all so puzzling. The why of a story is so important. In criminal court, we call that motive. And although legally you don't have to establish a motive, in a practical sense, jurors want to know. You're accusing someone of doing possibly something very horrible. And they want to know why would that person do that? Because it's so outside of what they could imagine themselves doing. And I think that's the problem I have here. Why would a father be willing to risk his boys' lives or take his boys' lives, allegedly? What was going on in his life that that was the answer that he came to to his problems? And I hope that we're all thinking about our own whys. Why am I here where I am at this time that I am? What is it that God has for me to do? And if you like these types of true crime stories, maybe maybe part of your why is you want to learn more about keeping yourself safe, about keeping your loved ones safe. Maybe you even want to take that next step and become a person of impact like we talk about and take what you've learned so that you can help others. Whatever your why is, once you know it, it will change your life, definitely for the better. 
It definitely did mine when I realized how much I loved sharing stories that make a difference, that help people. I wouldn't be telling these stories just because they're sensational or just to get people's attention. Because the one thing about this story is it should have been a story of three sweet little boys. But because we know nothing about what happened to them, it became a story of their dad. I want us to give them their story back. So if you know anything, you know anybody who might know anything, let's rewrite the ending of the Skelton Brothers story. And who knows? There might be other stories out there that you can contribute to. Now, if you like this episode, I'd love it if you'd check out some of my earlier ones. I've had so many amazing guests give me such incredible information that will help you help someone that you know. So please go check those out. And you can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, by sharing this episode or subscribing to the podcast or even going on Apple Podcasts and giving me a nice review with a five-star rating. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. The music is by Neocortex, and artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.